You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. When Harold Jesse Burney walked out of a Florida state prison on December 15th of 1945, he had already amassed a rap sheet seemingly a mile long dating back to 1917. With convictions for grand larceny, embezzlement, stock fraud, and violation of federal postal regulations, Burney was the classic career criminal. He probably didn't know it at the time of his release, but he was about to embark upon what would not only prove to be his most lucrative scheme ever, but also one that would turn out to be among the most bizarre cons pulled by anyone ever. And I mean ever. What's probably most amazing when you hear the details of this story is just how anyone could have fallen for his scheme. It was that incredibly ludicrous. The year was 1952. The development of television had been placed on hold during World War II, and in this post-war environment, TV was the hot new technology. Potentially, there was a lot of money to be earned, and everyone wanted in on the action. And Bernie was no exception. Now living in Washington, D.C., Bernie placed the letter A in front of his last name and started the Aberney Corporation, whose sole purpose was the manufacture of television antennas. The 54-year-old Bernie needed some starting capital, and he convinced an acquaintance, a Washington secretary named Pauline E. Goebel, to invest $500 in his new venture. That would be about $4,300 today. In March of 1953, the Aberney Corporation was dissolved, and Bernie started the Telewan Corporation. Ms. Goebel had been appointed both secretary and treasurer of the two companies, although in reality her only role in either company was that of Ms. Moneybags. Now if Harold Burney had stopped there, this would have been the story of just another failed businessman and Ms. Goebel would have been among the countless people that made a bad investment. But he didn't. In the summer of 1953, Burney told Ms. Goebel that he was going on vacation with his wife and two children to Rehoboth Beach in the state of Delaware. What he didn't ever tell her, however, was that this was much more than a family trip. It was, at least to a con man, more of a business trip. While there, he met Pleasant McCarty and his wife and told them about a patent he had just been awarded. It was such a great invention, one that would draw endless energy from the atmosphere, that Westinghouse was in talks with him to purchase it. Assuring the couple that they could quickly triple their money, Bernie convinced them to part with $10,000 of their hard-earned cash. They then took a mortgage out on their business to invest an additional $10,000. 
In January, Bernie got them to part with another $2,000 to, quote, help meet business expenses. And like any great magician, that was the last of the couple ever saw of Harold Jesse Bernie and their $22,000. Adjusted for inflation, the couple was out nearly $200,000. That's not exactly chump change. And here's where the story finally gets interesting. Bernie burned through the couple's cash quite quickly and needed a new sucker to milk dry. Said he set his sights on someone he knew well. That was Pauline Goebel. He wove a fanciful tale that took advantage of the fact that mankind was still earthbound. Having never placed a man in space and with little known about other planets, incredible stories about UFOs, Martians, and other aliens filled the public's imagination. While we now know that Bernie was down in Delaware that previous January defrauding the McCartys, he told Pauline in the strictest confidence that he was really on a top-secret mission. It was so secret that only the White House, the top executives at Westinghouse, and a few government top officials were in the know. In revealing this information to Pauline, he warned her that she couldn't reveal what she knew to anyone. You see, instead of going to Delaware, the government had flown Bernie and the Westinghouse officials to a military base in Houston, Texas. The group first walked through a series of buildings before emerging out onto an airstrip. And what they saw was beyond belief. It was a humongous bell-shaped flying saucer that Bernie estimated was about 100 feet or 30 meters in diameter and 30 to 40 or 9 to 12 meters tall. Bernie told Pauline that, quote, because of the high regard which officials of the federal government have for me, I was asked to enter first. He added, quote, inside the saucer I heard a voice. The voice said I had been chosen as the representative of Earth for the planet Venus. After a brief conversation, the voice became a visible blue glow, and the blue glow suddenly changed into the form of a human being. This interplanetary traveler introduced himself as Prince Euseles and told Bernie that his planet wished to establish a relationship with the United States and share their technological advances with us. Their only requirement was that it all be kept a secret. Bernie, along with the head honchos at Westinghouse, then flew back to Pittsburgh and Bernie checked himself into a hotel. That evening, Prince Euseles, who claimed to be 600 years old, once again magically appeared and told him of a machine that his people had invented, a modulator, and it extracted energy from the atmosphere back on Venus. Sound familiar? But now that fantastical machine could do so much more than when he ripped off that Delaware couple. Now it could, quote, softly lift and lower millions of tons in a fraction of a second. It can propel planes and spaceships at the speed of light or hold them motionless in the sky. It produces a power potential far greater than anything your atomic energy can contrive. Pauline, of course, was sold on the idea and invested more of her money. For every $100 she invested, Ms. Goble received a stock certificate that represented one share in the Telewan Corporation. Bernie then, of course, left on another one of his so-called business trips. On April 5th of 1955, Ms. Goebel answered the phone in her Washington, D.C. residence. The call was from a stranger in Texas claiming that he was Prince Eucellus himself. He told Pauline that Harold Bernie was seriously ill. 
And this was followed by a second call the following day telling her that Bernie had died on Venus. Now, one has to question why an alien capable of transforming himself into blue light and then teleporting just about anywhere would use the lowly telephone, but not Miss Goebel. She bought the story hook, line, and sinker, and she quickly swept into action. Recalling that only a very few had knowledge of the U.S. government's contact with Venus, she urgently tried to contact President Eisenhower to let him know. I'm sure you're not surprised, but she was unable to get in touch with him. About a week later, Pauline discovered a handwritten letter on her desk from Ucellus that said that Bernie was in need of money. Quote, I will be able to give him $500, which will tide his small bills, but he will need about $3,000 for the others. Now, why a dead man on Venus would need all that money is just beyond me. Anyway, uh, five months later, a second letter magically appeared. More money was needed, and Miss Goebel sent $4,500 to the Texas address that was indicated. On October 4th, she received a third letter in the mail telling her that Bernie had, quote, passed through a complete process of regeneration and was now on his way back to Texas from Venus. Yes, Harold J. Bernie was alive and well when he returned to Washington that fall. And boy, did he have one incredible story to tell. You see, on Venus, everything was so much bigger and better. He had returned to Earth via a 2-mile or 3.2-kilometer-long spaceship that had made a brief stopover on the, get this, the moon. Technology was way advanced beyond ours, and the building soared taller than the Washington Monument. So plentiful was gold that it was used in the manufacture of ordinary bathroom fixtures. And crime was basically non-existent and punishable by extradition to another planet. It was time to let the world know about his Venusian experiences, so Bernie, with Ms. Goebel's secretarial assistance, began to pen a manuscript titled Two Weeks on Venus. The book was never completed, although I would be interested in reading it. During the summer of 1956, Bernie was once again called away to Pittsburgh on business. Upon his return, he reported that technical problems with the modulator had been solved, but apparently that was not fast enough for Bernie. Although he lacked the capital to do so, he promised 10 Westinghouse executives a bonus of $1,000 each if they could get it done by an agreed-upon deadline. Hmm, where could he come up with that kind of cash quickly? Any ideas? Bernie returned to Pittsburgh and Pauline sent him a check for $10,000. He returned to Washington one more time, but that would be the last time Ms. Goebel would have any business dealings with him. His wife, referred to only as Mrs. Bernie in the press, received a package with a November 13, 1956 postmark from Eagle Pass, Texas. It contained Harold's wallet, about $300 in cash, all of his credentials, a camera, his watch, and a tie pin and cufflinks set bearing the initials HB. More significantly, there was a note handscribed on parchment paper telling Mrs. Bernie that her husband had died and was lying in state on Venus. It was signed by the one and only Eucellus. But unlike Pauline Goebel, Mrs. Bernie didn't believe any of it. She was convinced that her husband had simply deserted her and, of course, their children. It's unclear who contacted the authorities, but by February of 1957, the FBI was involved in the case. 
There had been no modulator, no dealings with Westinghouse, no trips to Venus, no Prince Eucellus. In fact, there was no Harold J. Burney to be found anywhere. The one lead that the FBI did have going for them was that Burney was really a sign painter by trade. They determined that he had purchased $600 worth of sign painting supplies after checking out of the Pittsburgh hotel he had been staying in. And since Bernie was known to head south to warmer climate each winter, the FBI focused their attention on southern states. On March 21st, an agent in Mobile, Alabama learned that a 1955 Oldsmobile had been registered in the name of one Hal Bernie. Very original. Agents drove over to Bernie's home on Northcraft Highway in nearby Pritchard, and guess what? There was a newly established sign painting company located there. Now, no one was there at the time, but a neighbor identified Bernie as the home's occupant. He suggested that the still-married Bernie may be over at his fiancée's house, and they headed on over. Along the way, they spotted a man fitting Bernie's description at the wheel of an Oldsmobile and signaled for him to pull over. Bernie was arrested but denied the charges. He was quoted as saying, "'Trip to Venus? Why, that's ridiculous!' Ridiculous maybe, but the evidence against him was overwhelming. He pled guilty to the charges, and in December of 1957, a sentence of between 20 months to 5 years was handed down. According to the Social Security Death Index, Harold Jesse Burney died in 1967 at the age of 69. Pauline E. Goebel was 94 when she passed away in 1997. When everything was totaled up, Bernie had defrauded Pauline Goebel out of an estimated $40,000 and the Delaware couple of an additional $22,000. Adjusted for inflation, his Cosmicon raked in about $525,000. Not bad for two weeks on Venus. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Although this has no connection at all, here is Ted Husing and the Shavathon. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Again tonight, we bring you the most famous ever sharp Schick Shavathon, the most daring demonstration ever conducted by any razor. Right before this microphone, in full view of our studio audience, we will now conduct another actual shaving contest, which proves week after week that ever sharp Schick injector razor gives the world's quickest, easiest, cleanest shave. In the last demonstration, an ever sharp Schick user whisked in the winner in the sizzling time of 41 seconds. Tonight, we have six more contestants picked at random from the studio audience. Three of these men are from New Jersey, one from New York, one from Florida, one from Massachusetts. Three are going to shave with the Eversharp Schick Injector Razors. Three will use other well-known safety razors. Well, who's going to win tonight's big shave-a-thon? Here the contestants are out on the stage. They're all added up. They're at the post. They're waiting for the signal. And here it is. And they're off. And again, tonight's big shave-a-thon is on. Well, I wish you could see these six shavers up here tonight on the stage. They've started this race all added up. Now they're assembling razors over there, but look at these men here with the ever-sharp schick. They're already out in front because with the automatic blade changer, there's no blade to unwrap. All you do is pull, push, click, click, and there's a blade all ready to shave you. Fast, you said it. Smooth, right again. Easy, say, mister. It's a pleasure with this razor. And there is the winner. How do you like that? In that quick time. 
He must be the fastest man in the whole wide world. And, uh, Charlie Irving, what's the official time? It's 20 seconds, Ted. And the winner is Mr. Schreier. Mr. Schreier, swell. Congratulations, sir. Now you have actual proof that with an Eversharp stick, you not only shave faster and easier, but your face feels smoother and more comfortable. You can feel the difference. You bet. No sting, no pull. Yes, folks, for the world's quickest, easiest, cleanest shave, use an Eversharp Schick injector razor. 20 seconds. <laughs> Well, that's what they get if they're going to put an eight-year-old boy in the contest. Youch! Would you want to shave your face that quickly? I wouldn't want to even try it with a modern razor. That commercial for the Eversharp Schick Injector Razors from the January 29, 1947 episode of The Henry Morgan Show. Morgan was well known for making fun of his sponsors, whether it be Adler Elevator Shoes, Lifesavers, or the Eversharp Razor. Needless to say, Schick got fed up with his antics and eventually pulled their sponsorship of the show. The Schick Injector Razor was invented by Joseph Schick and first marketed in 1926. The original name of the company was the Magazine Repeating Razor Company, but they were really manufactured for his company by the American Chain and Cable Company. Two years later, Schick sold off his interest in the company to American Chain and Cable, and that was so he could focus on his new invention, what is known as the electric shaver or the electric razor. American Chain and Cable then sold Schick to the Eversharp company in 1946. Eversharp tried for years to eliminate the Schick name from their product line since there was brand confusion with the Schick electric shavers, but they were totally unsuccessful. In the end, the electric Schick was acquired by Philips in 1982, and the Schick name phased out in favor of the Norelco branding. Schick had modeled the injector razor after the magazine cartridge system that's found in guns. You simply push the stem protruding from the cartridge into the side of your razor, pull back on the blade loader until it clicked, and then push forward to replace the blade. Hence the popular slogan, push, pull, click, click. They did fail to mention that the old blade came flying out the other side of the razor, but it was still a big improvement over having to replace double-edged blades. Although hard to find, modern Schick injector cartridges will still work in any injector razors going back to 1935. Today, disposables and modern cartridge blades like the Gillette Fusion, Mach 3, and Schick Hydro dominate the market. Personally, I got tired of paying about $3 per blade and switched to an old-fashioned double-edge safety razor. Did that for a couple of years, but since I can't see very well while I'm shaving anymore, I gave myself one too many bad nicks, actually it's more like gushers, and decided over Thanksgiving to switch back to a modern razor. I was just telling a friend yesterday that I was about to sign up for the Dollar Shave Club that's so heavily advertised online. But I did a little research and found out that their razors are made by a Korean company named Dorco. And to my surprise, they were sold online through DorcoUSA.com. If you want to check it out, it's D-O-R-C-O-U-S-A.com. I have to admit, it's a really awful name. Um, but I'm having great success with their blades. If you do decide to get them, don't ever pay full price. They always have discount codes available. Now, since today's feature story is about fraud, I thought it'd be nice to hear three additional stories on crime. Of course, as you'd expect from me, none of these are your typical crimes. Take, for instance, the story that appeared in the February 19th, 1902 edition of the New York Times. 
It was reported that 18-year-old Alfred DeChico walked into the Bedford Avenue police station in New York City claiming that 18-year-old Salvatore Caraceto had shot him three times. Now, the two had been rivals in love, so Caraceto snuck up behind DeChico as he was escorting two women and opened fire. He had shot three 32 caliber bullets into DeChico's back, and then he ran away. As DeChico entered the police station, there was no overtly apparent evidence of the shooting. No blood could be seen, and he was absolutely in no pain at all. Just how could that be? As DeChico unbuttoned his coat and vest, three flattened bullets fell to the floor. It turns out that all the bullets had hit the right buckle of his suspenders and saved his life. Caracato was arrested and admitted in court to the crime. For our second story, there's that old saying that a sucker is born every minute. Take this story dated March 26 of 1952 from Wetumpka, Oklahoma as an example. It seems that back in 1950, a man named F. Bam Morrison announced that the circus was on its way to Wetumpka. The kind people of the city donated money to help feed the elephants and the rest of the animals. A local merchant paid Morrison to obtain the rights to run the hot dog concession. Everything was all set for the big day, but the circus never arrived. Instead, F. Bam Morrison skipped town with their money. Hmm, maybe he went to Venus with it. Then, a year later, on March 15th, the townspeople lined the streets to welcome the well-known Kilties Drum and Bugle Corps. But once again, the show never arrived. So the mayor checked the letter that he received from the Oklahoma City Chamber of Commerce. It turns out that they were scheduled to arrive on April 15th, not March 15th. Oops. Anyway, the city council responded with a chuckle and decided to designate August 30th of each year as Sucker Day. They still do celebrate it annually, although it's now held on the last Saturday of September. The next Sucker Day festival is scheduled for September 26th of 2015, so be sure to mark it on your calendar. And our last tidbit for today took place in New York City on January 22nd of 1958. It seems the thieves stole a tractor trailer that was loaded with $22,000 worth of green coffee. Now that would be about $175,000 in value today. They drove the truck to another garage at 564 Carroll Street and unloaded the coffee. But what they didn't anticipate was that in removing all of that weight, the truck's body would rise higher than the garage door through which it had entered. When the driver tried to drive the truck out of the garage, he tore sections of the front wall right off of the building. Residents heard a thunderous crash and called the police. They arrived to find the thieves long gone, but 325 bags of coffee had been neatly stacked inside the garage, and the truck was covered in debris with a high beam resting against one of its sides. The tires of the truck had been deflated, suggesting to the police that the thieves had made one last attempt to get the vehicle out of its conspicuous location. The truck was reloaded with the coffee and easily drove back out through the garage door. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one that you just heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and in the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. You can do it for free through iTunes or just about any other podcast indexing service. Like the show on Facebook by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast. Lastly, if you've never done so, please be sure to write some positive comments on the show page of iTunes, and that will help steer more listeners this way. As always, I thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.